Hello, fellow Catholics. Have you ever come across arguments from Protestants and they say, where do you find that in the Bible? Prove to me purgatory, Mary, the church, the Eucharist. Show me where it says priests can forgive sins. So naturally, you're going to go to verses like John 20, 21 through 23, where Jesus gives his priests the authority to forgive sins. But then all of a sudden, Protestants have a response and you're like, uh-oh, now what do I say? I gave him the verse, but that's all I got. Well, now there's a great new book out and it's called uh, Meeting the Protestant Response. And it's actually giving responses to what the Protestants are going to respond to our verses. So if you've ever had the the choice or the argument with a Protestant and you say something to them, they always come back and say something to you, but you, then you don't know what to say. Well, now you can, because this book is amazing. And I have a wonderful guest on. He's a Catholic Answers apologist, and his name is Carlo Broussard, and this is his new book, and I highly want to recommend it. I've been doing apologetics for well over two decades now. I've done street evangelization, church evangelization, anything you can think of. I've talked to thousands of people. I've heard every argument, and this book is really good. It actually brings up a lot of the most popular arguments and it teaches you to answer them and very clearly and concisely. So I highly recommend this book. And he's going to be talking about this and giving some of the arguments to uh, the Protestant objections today. And if you don't know Carlo, uh, he is a full-time staff apologist at Catholic Answers. And he is a national international speaker who speaks around the world on apologetics, biblical studies, theology, and philosophy. In fact, he holds two degrees in theology and one in philosophy, and he's working on his PhD right now in philosophy as well. So, you know, he's studied a little bit these things. Um, he's published countless articles, authored numerous books, including um, Meeting the Protestant Response. So, Thank you for joining us on our channel today, Mr. Broussard. We really appreciate it, and uh, we want to welcome you to our show. Brian, thanks for having me, man. I'm looking forward to it. Absolutely. What's the name of your first book? So the first book is called Prepare the Way, Overcoming Obstacles to God, the Gospel, and the Church that basically coaches you in strategies on how to help unbelievers and skeptics overcome certain intellectual and emotional obstacles that might stand in the way from them encountering Christ. The second book was Meeting the Protestant Challenge, yes, which was sort of the, the first Protestant Catholic book that I wrote, and then Meeting the Protestant Response is sort of an analog follow-up to it. But Meeting the Protestant Challenge addresses 50 challenges posed to us by Protestants that take the form, how can the church teach X when the Bible says Y? So it's an alleged contradiction between what we believe and a particular Bible passage. And then I go through those challenges and show why the particular Bible passage does not conflict with the Catholic belief and show that the Catholic belief in that Bible passage is actually compatible rather than contradictory. Uh, my third book was Purgatory is for Real, Good News About the Afterlife for Those Who Aren't Perfect Yet. And then the, I, guess, I suppose the title and the subtitle pretty much captures what that book is about. <laughs> and then my fourth book here recently that we're going to talk about today is Meeting the Protestant Response, How to Answer Common Comebacks to Catholic Arguments. And you just laid it out beautifully there, Brian, in capturing basically what I'm doing in this book. Yeah, because a lot of times 
it's very helpful. For example, I was talking to a Protestant once and he said, you know, Jesus saves you. Sacraments don't save you. Uh, baptism doesn't save you. And he's going down the list. And I said, actually, baptism does save you. 1 Peter 3.21 says baptism saves you. And uh, he's like, no, it doesn't say that. I said, could you open up your Bible and read it to me? And he looked it up and he read it out loud to me. And he, he said, well, that's not what that means. And that's a right. common response. And a lot of times Catholics can't, themselves can't go deeper. And I think yeah. that's why this book is such a gem because it teaches you to go deeper and it teaches you to understand these. You exegete these passages, right. I think, really, really well. And Thanks, as Brian. I told you before the show, I even learned you know, a, 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 some things in this book. And, uh, and I really enjoyed the way that you did this. You took arguments that I know people use because I hear them all the time. And then you teach us how to answer them. So why don't we show people how to do that without further right, ado? Sure. Why don't we get into some of these? Yeah, um, let's do it. So one of my favorites is, um, I guess the first one I'd like to bring up is uh, John 3, 5 refers to, yeah. you know, baptism. We say that it's being born of water in the spirit, baptism, but many Protestants um, say that the water doesn't refer to baptism. It refers to our mother's womb and our biological birth. So you're born in your womb with your mother, but then the second birth is a spiritual birth. Like, what would the Catholic response be to that? Yeah, well, the first answer or response that I articulate in this particular chapter in my book, Brian, is that the context, both the immediate or the, you might say the proximate context and the wider or more remote context reveals that both water and spirit together constitute the second birth. So if you look at our Lord's words themselves, he speaks of the second birth or the birth from above or to be born again as including both water and spirit. So there's no division between the two. If Jesus would have meant that the water refers to our first birth or our biological or natural birth, he would have said, you must be born of water and then born of the spirit. But Jesus doesn't say that. Both water and together, water and spirit together constitute the second birth from above or the supernatural birth. But if even if we look at the wider context, I think we have evidence that water and spirit together constitute the second birth, which we uh, uh, associate with baptism. So if you consider, for example, the images of spirit and water together constitute the event of Jesus's baptism, which John hints at in John chapter 1, verses 29 through 34, and that's just two chapters. So that's establishing the context of the born-again discourse. And John chapter 3, verse 23, John the evangelist records how John the Baptist was baptizing um, at Anon near Salim. So there you have another reference to baptism preceding the born-again discourse. Then if we go to the immediate context following John 3, 5 and John 4, 1 through 2, we're told that the apostles went about baptize, baptizing. So we have baptism consisting of water and spirit in Jesus' baptism, the mention of baptism both before and after the born-again discourse. And so given that immediate context and the wider context, we have good reason to conclude that both water and spirit together constitute the second birth or the birth from above, rather than this idea that the water refers to our first natural birth and then the spirit alone refers to our second birth. The second answer or response to this Protestant comeback, Brian, is that it fails to see the allusion to Ezekiel's prophecy that was seen for first century Jews as an eschatological baptism. So notice how when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, 
Jesus replies to Nicodemus and says, are you a teacher of Israel and yet you don't understand this? There in verse 10, as if Nicodemus being a teacher of Israel, knowing the Jewish scriptures, should know what Jesus is referring to when he speaks of being born anew of water and spirit. So Jesus is implicitly hinting at the Jewish tradition. So what Jewish tradition might that be? Well, as I point out in my book, I propose it's Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27, which is a prophecy of how God will give uh, a new heart to his people. He will give them a new spirit that he will put within them. He will take out the flesh of heart of stone and give a heart of flesh. He will put his spirit within them. And we're told that he will clean them from their uncleanness and sprinkle them with clean water. So in Ezekiel's prophecy, you have the imagery of water, renewal, and the spirit. And so those three images are present in Ezekiel, and that serves, Brian, as the Old Testament backdrop against which Jesus speaks of being born anew by water and spirit and saying that Nicodemus should know about this and should know what he's referring to. And so what could Ezekiel's prophecy be referring to? Well, first century Jews, as I point out in the book, I quote New Testament scholar George Beasley Murray, the late New Testament scholar George Beasley Murray, identifying how for first century Jews, this prophecy of Ezekiel was seen to be an eschatological baptism. So Ezekiel's prophecy and the sprinkling of clean water and renewal by the Spirit was associated, even for first century Jews, with baptism. And that is what Jesus was referring to when he speaks of being born again of water and Spirit. And finally, Brian, John's language for natural birth is not born of water. Rather, it's born of blood. And he even records Jesus talking about natural birth as well. In John 3, 6, he, re he records Jesus's use or reference to natural birth as born of flesh. That's how Jesus speaks of biological natural birth, born of flesh. John, in John chapter 1, verses 12 through 13, the language he uses for natural birth is born of blood. So neither Jesus nor John refer to natural birth as born of water. They have their own labels for natural birth, and it is not born of water. So when we come to John 3, 5, and Jesus speaks of this new birth of water and spirit, we have no reason to conclude that it's referring to our first natural birth and every reason to conclude that together they constitute the second birth from above, which the context suggests is baptism. Yes, excellent. And um, I thought that was a great treatment. And I want to let you all know out there that this is just one objection to this argument. There are more, but we don't have right. time to cover all of them. So if you want to see all the objections and how to counter them, please check out his book, Meeting the Protestant Response. Because, yeah, I mean, even in that chapter, you bring up one of my favorite um, verses, uh, Romans 6, uh, verses 1 through yes. 11. And even after that, but it talks about how we die with Christ. In fact, First Timothy says, if we don't die with Christ, we're not going to live with him in heaven. Well, how do mm. we die with Christ? Romans 6 says it's through baptism. We die with him through baptism and come to new life with him through baptism. So all together, it just makes a great case, not to mention the unanimous consent of the earliest fathers, but you know, for the baptism being born of water in the spirit. So I thought you did a great job in that chapter on that. Thank you. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Um, so would you mind talking about the Immaculate Conception? I, uh, oh, sure, I, I yeah. enjoyed that. I enjoyed all your chapters. This was like, I don't do this too often. 
you know, when I, I, I have a book and I'm about to l- read a chapter and I'm like, oh my gosh, this chapter looks good to you. Oh my gosh. This, and I couldn't, I couldn't choose which one I wanted to read first. <laughs> and um, so people, even if you don't want to read the whole book, this book is perfect. Everyone should have it in their library because it's a reference book. If you, yeah. if someone says something to you that you don't know, you go get the book, you read that piece of the chapter, and then you have the comeback. And so you don't have to read through the whole thing straight away, although you can and should if you want to know your faith. But it could also be a reference book in your library. So I highly recommend it for that. In regard to the Immaculate Conception of Mary, many Protestants would say it's completely unbiblical. This is what we hear. It's not in the Bible. It's not biblical, and it has no biblical under, uh, basis whatsoever. But we disagree. We we think there is some biblical basis, and you mentioned such in your book. Can you talk about Genesis 3.15 that you uh, go through? Yeah, so Genesis 3.15, known as the Proto-Evangelium, or the first good news, the first gospel, is that passage where after Eve falls, God speaks to the serpent or the devil and says, I will set enmity, which means separation, between you, the devil, and the woman, between your seed and her seed. And he shall, referring to the seed of the woman, he shall crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. And throughout our theological tradition, Christians have viewed that passage primarily as a reference to the Messiah to come, whom we know to be Jesus Christ, but also seeing the woman as a reference to Mary, the mother of the Messiah. And it's often been interpreted uh, or reflected upon and exegeted as in the following way. The enmity that God sets between Satan and the woman suggests or provides a biblical convergence with the Catholic understanding of Mary's immaculate conception and sinlessness. The opposition that Mary would have with the devil, given her immaculate conception, freedom from original sin, and sinlessness, remaining sinless throughout the rest of her life. Now, our Protestant friends have some comebacks to that common Catholic reading of the text. One says that the enmity that is spoken of here does not entail the complete enmity or opposition and separation that Catholics need in order to root her sinlessness in this passage. And so one example that's appealed to is believers in the world, right? I mean, because one way of reading this text is that the seed of the woman refers to believers, Christian believers, uh, and that the Christian believer is going to be set in opposition from the devil. But the enmity that believers have with the devil, that does not entail complete enmity. We're not all immaculately conceive. We're not all sinless. So some will argue that the enmity here is not enough separation and opposition from the devil that we would need as Catholics in order to say that Mary is this new woman separated from the devil in a complete way, both immaculately conceived and remaining sinless throughout her life. Now, in response to that comeback, as I point out in my book, Brian, is that on one level, we agree that the enmity is not complete. With insofar as the woman is referring to Eve and her offspring, that will be in opposition to de- the devil and his offspring. 
there is not complete opposition and separation. There is some separation and opposition with the devil and his lineage and his offspring, but not a total. So we agree on one level of interpretation, but we also acknowledge that there are multiple layers of meaning when we're talking about prophetical text. And insofar on the spiritual and prophetical level, insofar as this text is referring to the mother of the Messiah to come, namely Mary, it can have, or should I say it like this, complete and total opposition or enmity is a viable option. And here's the way we can see this, Brian. As Christians, we see in the seed of the woman as a reference, as a prophetical reference to Jesus. And we know as Christians, according to Hebrews 4.15, that Jesus is entirely, Entirely and totally separated from the devil. The enmity between the devil and Jesus is complete because Jesus was without original sin and without personal sin throughout his life. And if you notice in the prophecy, there is a parallel between the enmity that exists between the seed of the woman and the devil and the enmity that exists between the devil and the woman. And given that parallel, between the enmity between the devil and the seed and the devil and the woman, we're able to conclude that the enmity between the devil and the woman is of equal value to the enmity between the devil and the seed of the woman, insofar as it's going to be complete. Now, theologically, we can prescind from that and understand that the enmity is going to be, although both complete with regard to Mary and Jesus, it's going to be different, right? Because Jesus is the word incarnate. And so his enmity and his separation from the devil is of a different and unique uh, manner or mode than the enmity set between Mary and the devil. So there's going to be a difference between Jesus and Mary, but insofar as the enmity is complete, we can affirm that on the prophetical level of interpreting this text. And that, Brian, gives us uh, biblical, uh, a biblical convergence with the tradition that we have as Catholics concerning Mary's immaculate conception and her sinlessness throughout her life. Thank you very much. And there's so much more that could be said on that topic. I mean, just, right. just scratching the surface, but um, very explained very well. Um, <clears throat> speaking about Mary, nowhere in the Bible does it say you should pray to Mary. And nowhere in the Bible does it say you should pray to saints, or at least that's what we're told, right? And uh, yeah. people will say, show me in the Bible where it says to pray to saints. And usually the go-to verse is Revelation 5.8, where it says that, you know, they, the people in heaven offer the saints, the incense to God uh, or to the lamb. And <clears throat> many people say, well, that's not the actual, you know, saints, or that's not our prayers, or that's not, the, you know, they have a lot of different objections to that. Um yeah. What is one of the most popular objections to that, and how could that be answered? Yeah, well, one comeback that I deal with and tangle with in the book is that the saints, when it talks about the prayers of the saints represented by the incense that's being offered to the Lamb by the 24 elders, which we know from the biblical context refers to human souls, and, and that is the saints in the phrase prayers of the saints does not refer to Christians on earth because that's one of the assumptions that we as Catholics make when we appeal to this text for biblical support of the intercession of the saints. We assume that 
saints here refers to Christians on earth, and thus the prayers of the Christians on earth are being offered to the Lamb via the intercession of the 24 elders. But that's an assumption that some Protestants will challenge. For example, uh, one Protestant apologist by the name of Matt Slick uh, challenges this assumption, saying that the saints refers either to the living creatures surrounding the Lamb, like the angelic beings, or are the 24 elders who surround the throne of the Lamb, rather than Christians on earth. So in response to that comeback, one thing I point out is that prayers of the saints can't refer to the 24 elders themselves. The saints can't refer to the 24 elders themselves because the prayers of the saints is distinct from what the elders are doing in worshiping the Lamb. The prayers of the saints is that which the elders offer to the lamb in the form of incense. So the saints can't refer to the 24 elders. But I think, Brian, there are some positive reasons that we can give why saints refers to Christians on earth. It is a reasonable interpretation. Uh, it is reasonable to interpret the saints as a reference to Christians on earth. Number one, the overwhelming use of the term saints or hagioi in Greek in the New Testament refers to Christians on earth. And whenever some might say it is being referred to Christians in heaven, uh, it's ambiguous. And that's in St. Paul's letter to the Colossians. So we all we have immediately the overwhelming use of the term saints is used for Christians on earth. So that's going in our favor of interpreting saints as a reference to Christians on earth. Secondly, the Bible associates incense with the prayers of the faithful on earth. You can check out Psalm 141, verse 2 for that. So we have that going for us. Incense represents prayers of faithful on earth arising up to heaven. And then check this out, Brian. In Tobit chapter 12, verse 15, we have that phrase explicitly used, prayers of the saints. And it's in reference to the prayer of Tobit and his daughter-in-law that the angel Raphael offers to God in heaven. Now, somebody's going to immediately counter and say, well, Protestants don't accept Tobit as the inspired word of God. And that is true, but it still has value for us, Brian, because it provides for us an insight as to what a Jew like John writing the book of Revelation would have had in mind when talking about, quote unquote, prayers of the saints. In the Jewish tradition, prayers of the saints refer to prayers of God's people here on earth arising up in heaven. And this would even make more sense out of Revelation chapter 8, verses 3 through 4, where John tells us the angels in heaven are doing exactly what the 24 presbyters are doing in Revelation 5, 8, offering up the prayers of the saints in the form of incense. Maybe that's Raphael? Perhaps. And so for these reasons... We are within the boundaries of reason, and even more so, more than just reasonable, I think we can conclude that the, Christ, the saints, in that phrase, prayers of the saints, refers to Christians on earth. And if prayers of Christians on earth being offered up to the Lamb via the intercession of these 24 presbyters who are human souls in heaven, we have a revelation of the saints in heaven praying for us. Now, it is true, Brian, that this does not say or give us instruction to offer our requests or make our requests known to them. But given the biblical evidence that they pray, 
it's reasonable for us to make our requests known for them. Exactly how St. Paul, I think it's in Romans chapter eight, I point this out in my book. St. Paul teaches us that the Holy Spirit intercedes for us, Brian, but never does the Bible instruct us to ask the Holy Spirit to intercede for us. But it doesn't follow from that that we should not ask the Holy Spirit to intercede for us simply because the Bible never instructs us to do so. Given the revelation that the Holy Spirit intercedes for us, it's reasonable for us to make our requests known to him. Similarly, given the biblical revelation that souls in heaven pray for us here on earth, it's reasonable to conclude that we could and should, and it's a good and holy thing, to make our requests known to them. And I think that's a very problematic aspect of uh, Bible-only Christianity is that some people right. feel that the Bible has to say every last thing in order for it to be true, but that leads to problematic elements as well, such as sola scriptura and other That's such right. things. Um, yeah, because one one point there is, you know, the the counter is that, well, there's no explicit instruction for us to make our requests known to them. Well, that presupposes or assumes a particular belief, namely that if the Bible does not give us explicit instruction to do something as a Christian, then we ought not to do it. But that's a belief itself that is not articulated in sacred scripture. That's a belief that's held according to a common tradition among that, those particular Christians. Yeah, and that leads to a whole host of problems like right. worshiping in a church versus somebody's house, um, yeah. using guitars and microphones in church rather than symbols and whatever the Old Testament <laughs> instruments right. were, you know, all these things that the Bible doesn't specifically say you can use. So it's not really a, um, a good way to exegete or interpret the Bible. And uh, I think people should really consider that. Um, but that's a whole nother topic. I'll, I'll stop there. I was going to yeah. go off on a tangent, but uh, let's go on to another one. Uh, I, I always get into discussions about the authority of the church. Peter, I mean, clearly he has authority from the beginning of the New Testament to the end. Um, he is mentioned 195 times, whereas St. John's mentioned like 29 times and St. James 16 times and the others a lot less. And we can see his authority. But one of the ways that Protestants try to downplay that authority is the Council of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 11. And uh, yeah. did I say Acts chapter Acts 15, 15. Acts 15. You said 11, yeah, I was but it's being 15. dyslexic. Eleven fifteen. That was on my mind. <laughs> and uh, they try to say that James was the one who ran the council in Acts 15. And they said that yeah. he was the one who had authority. He was the spokesman. He's the one who made the judgment, whereas Peter really didn't do much. But is that really an accurate understanding of Acts 15, especially Acts 15, 11? Yeah, well, my answer would be no. It's not an accurate reading of the text. I would conclude, as I point out in my book, that Peter indeed does have the role of leadership, or, or should I say this, Peter exercises a supreme authority at the council, because we can affirm and concede that James has a role of leadership at the council given the historical evidence that he was the Bishop of Jerusalem at the time. But that does not mean that he has a superior authority over Peter. Peter still exercises a unique role of leadership over the whole church. And uh, he does this by, number one, taking the initiative to settle the theological dispute as to whether grace or circumcision saves us. James does not. If James were the supreme leader of the early Christian church, he would have been the one to take the initiative to settle the debate. 
He does not. Peter does. But not only does Peter take the initiative, he he doesn't just take the initiative to raise the issue. He takes the initiative to settle the issue. And this provides for us the opportunity to see the contrast between Peter's speech in verses 7 through 11 and James's speech. Because when Peter takes the initiative to engage the theological debate, the content, first of all, of his speech is one of divine revelation. He declares what is divinely revealed concerning our salvation. Contrast that with what James proposes later in the narrative, where he proposes things that have a pastoral orientation of how to unify Jewish and Gentile Christians and how to help them get along in the first century church concerning certain disciplinary precepts. So the content of the two speeches stands in stark contrast. But even further, Brian, Peter takes the initiative to say something about divine revelation, but he presents it in it as a doctrinal statement, making rather than a mere opinion. He says, we believe. He speaks on behalf of the whole Christian community, saying, this is what we believe, declaring it to be so. Contrast that with James, who actually offers his ideas for consideration. He says in verse, um, I think it's verse 19, therefore, 19 through 20, therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them. Now, this is after Peter had already declared the matter. This is after Paul and Barnabas had recounted their missionary journeys. And then James affirming what Peter says, Simeon hath declared, goes on and says, therefore, my judgment. Notice Peter said, we believe. James says, it's my judgment that we should not trouble the Gentiles who turn to God. We should write to them. The Greek there for judgment has the connotation of a preference, an opinion, or to think about or to consider. That stands in contrast to what Peter declares in an authoritative way to settle the dispute. And so I I think that these things need to be taken into consideration in order to see that although James exercises a role of leadership, his authority is subordinate to the authority that Peter exercises in declaring the truth about how a man is to be saved. And at no point in the narrative, Brian, does anybody respond to Peter and say, who are you? to declare to us what is the truth of the matter. Nobody questions Peter's judgment on the matter. Everybody accepts it. And then they move on switching gears to what they need to do concerning pastoral issues of reconciling new Jewish and Gentile converts to Christianity. Yeah, 100%. And what I find uh, interesting is that the whole uh, passage starts out by saying there was a a big debate among it, and people, the elders and the apostles, would not even listen to Paul and Barnabas. I mean, if you're going to listen to anybody, you know, like they wouldn't That's even right. listen to them. But then Peter stands up, says what we believe authoritatively, and then I love verse twelve. It just says they fell silent. Nobody else yeah. had anything to say after he talked. That's right. That's right. Acts 15, one through two, that's what you're referring to. There was, you know, Luke tells us there was no small dissension, right? Where Paul and Barnabas were trying to convince the Judaizers of the truth of the matter, but 
they couldn't settle the debate. They they did not see themselves as having the authority to, to settle the, the, the debate. So Luke tells us they took it up to Jerusalem. Then Luke affirms again in verse 6 of Acts chapter 15 that there was a lot of debate going on, subsequent to which, in verse 7, Peter rises and declares the matter. And you pointed out in verse 12 there, and they all fell silent. Some will say in response as a counter-argument, that they fell silent in order to listen to Paul and Barnabas give an account of their missionary journey. That's a possible interpretation, but I think when you read the flow of the narrative, Luke is summarizing the events of the council with the debate, Peter's speech, their silence, and then Paul and Barnabas speak, and then James gives his his judgment, and then they consider the matter, then they give a declaration on the pastoral issues. And so if Luke intended the silence to be teeing up, so to speak, what Paul and Barnabas were about to talk about, it seems as if he would have said, and they fell silent in order to listen to Paul and Barnabas. But that's not what Luke records. He simply puts it in there as a summary of things taking place in the flow of the narrative. And so when you read it in that light, it seems as if the silence is a reference to what Peter had already said. There was no more debate. So there's debate, Peter's declaration, then there's a mention of silence. The silence seems to be explaining or contrasting the debate that was going on prior to Peter's declaration. And if there is silence after Peter's declaration, then it's reasonable to conclude the silence is a way of articulating the the ramifications or the consequence of Peter's declaration. There was no more debate. Absolutely. And that's how I've always seen it, too. I mean, they couldn't speak, in a sense, until Peter settled the matter. And then they actually listened to Paul and Barnabas, and uh, James was able to speak. But that was only after the matter had, had been settled. And I thought that right. it's very interesting, you know, and uh again people i just want to reiterate that this is just one objection there are others and um carlo broussard in his book meeting the protestant response mentions the others too he's not just like taking you know the the weakest argument he's taking the best arguments he quotes top protestant scholars he gives their arguments and then he addresses them in a very academic and scholarly way so i highly recommend this book meeting the protestant response how to answer common comebacks to catholic arguments um, let's go on to, uh, one of my favorite passages. I think I mentioned it earlier, John 20, 21 through 23. It's the go-to verse where, uh, Protestants say, prove to me that, you know, priests can forgive sins. Men can't forgive sins, which of course is true. Uh, and we always go to John 20, 21 through 23. And there's always a response back that, well, that's not what that means, or it's not really what you think it is. And so, what are the what's an objection that you hear and how would you respond to that? Yeah, so one of the common comebacks to our appeal to John 2023 20, is that the language of forgiving and retaining sins is meant to be interpreted as a commission to preach the forgiveness of sins. And the idea is that the apostles are to go out and preach the forgiveness of sins. And if a person hears the preaching, responds to the preaching in faith, and accepts the gospel message, their sins will be forgiven by God. 
And if the person hearing the gospel message does not repent and accept the gospel message, their sins will be retained, i.e. will not be forgiven by God. So this is a common Protestant uh, comeback. Uh, Robert Zins proposes it. Rod Rhodes proposes it. I cite them in, in, in this particular chapter. But in response, there are several things we can say, Brian. First of all, Nowhere in the context does Jesus talk about preaching. So that's just the first point. So this is, there, there's nothing in the context to lend itself to the idea that this is to mean preaching rather than forgiving. Secondly, the action verbs of forgiving and retaining do not even suggest preaching in and of themselves. So not only is there nothing in the context to lead us to think we should interpret these action verbs in the preaching sense, the action verbs themselves do not entail preaching in any way whatsoever. So, for example, if I tell my nine-year-old, uh, you know, forgive forgive your 11-year-old brother for pushing you or hitting you or something, Right. I, I don't mean, you know, Catherine, my nine-year-old, tell your brother Elijah that what he did was wrong and that if he needs to re repent, and that he needs to repent in order for God to forgive him. That's not what I mean when I say forgive your brother. What I mean is don't hold him accountable for the offense anymore because he told you he was sorry. I, now, if she would go to her brother and say, Elijah, you need to repent, boy, because if you don't, God ain't going to forgive you. <laughs> if that's if she would do that, that would be great. I'd be totally happy with that. But that's not what I mean when I say, Catherine, forgive your brother for hitting you or pushing you. So the very words themselves do not in any way entail preaching. And another response is that the disciples are the ones who are the subject of the action. If it were only God forgiving, and not involving the disciples as ordained ministers in any way in the action of forgiving, then it seems as if Jesus would have said, whatever sins God forgives, they will be forgiven. Whatever sins God retains, they will be retained. But rather what Jesus says, whatever sins you, the disciples, forgive, they are forgiven. Whatever you retain, they are retained. Now, this is not to say that God does not forgive or retain. We recognize God as the ultimate source of the forgiveness and the power to forgive. But to deny the apostles as having a role to play in the actual forgiving of the sins goes contrary to the plain sense of the text. Now, here's an interesting thing, Brian. Think about this. If all Jesus meant were for the disciples to go out and preach the mercy of God and the forgiveness of sins, then this commission would have been nothing new. Why? Because Jesus had already gave the disciples a commission to go out and preach the mercy of God in Mark chapter 6, verses 7 through 12, at the beginning of the ministry. But what we know from John 20, 23, is that this commission to forgive and retain sins is something new. First of all, at no other time does Jesus ever uh, breathe on the apostles. Secondly, Jesus had never communicated the Holy Spirit to the disciples prior to this moment. And thirdly, he had never said, whatever you sins you forgive and retain, they're forgiven and retained. So this is something new going on. Given the fact that it's something new, it cannot be 
merely a commission for them to go out and preach. So here's the summary of the argument. Premise one, if this is only preaching, then it would not be something new. Premise two, it is something new. Therefore, conclusion, it's not merely, it's not a commission to go out and preach the forgiveness of sins. And finally, Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, I now send you. How did the Father send, what did the Father send Jesus to do to forgive sins? How did Jesus forgive sins? Merely proclaiming the Father's forgiveness? No, by actually forgiving sins. And Jesus makes it clear that he's sending the disciples to do the very same thing that the Father sent him to do to actually forgive sins. And just lest there's any confusion or ambiguity, Jesus specifies exactly what they are to do as the Father sent him to do, forgive and retain sins. So these are ways in which I would respond to this common Protestant comeback and show that the Catholic interpretation of John 20, 23 as a reference to the sacrament of reconciliation is strong and it remains standing despite the Protestant comeback. Yeah, and I think it was your book where you you rightly mentioned that the Greek word to send means to send with the same authority. You know, he's not just sending them, you know, (laughs) willy-nilly. It's with his authority. And I do like the distinction that you brought out that he already sent the apostles to preach the forgiveness of sins in other passages previously. So he's not actually doing... And the, the the gospel writers could have said that. Oh, well, you just, or Jesus could have said that. Just go out and preach the forgiveness of sins. And if people listen to you, then tell them their sins are forgiven. But as you said, he, everything he says is distinctly different than that. There, He breathes on them, which is only the second time in the entire Bible. You know, he gives them the commands and he tells them to do it, not that God's going to do it, you know. But of course, you know, we do believe that it is God who forgives the sins, right? Right. That's right. God is the source and the power of the forgiveness of sins. But as we profess as Catholics is that he intends to use his ordained ministers as the instruments to make a judgment whether to forgive or not to forgive. And that's implied in the very commission. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain, they're retained. That implies that the apostle, the disciples must the these ordained ministers of Christ must make a, a, a judgment with the authority of Christ whether to forgive or not to forgive? And of course, that implies that confession of sins would be present, right? That in order for them to make a judgment, they must know what the sins are and they must know whether the person is actually sorry for the sins. So that implies verbal confession of sins. And so, in the very instruction, to forgive sins, you have Jesus's expression of his will that penitents confess their sins. And though that's the, that's the sacrament of reconciliation, all the elements that constitute the sacrament of reconciliation are present there in that text in John 20, 23. Exactly. So when Protestants say only God can forgive sins, we say amen. <laughs> Absolutely. Amen. amen. Yeah. Affirming that God is the source of the forgiveness of sins does not entail a negation that God will use ordained ministers as instruments to administer that forgiveness of sins. Just like God is the source of physical healing and a miracle, right? Acts chapter three, Peter performs a miracle. God is the source of that physical healing. But affirming that God is the source of the physical healing does not negate that God will to use Peter as an instrument to make a judgment to administer that 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 power of healing in that particular instance. 
So too, God is the source of the forgiveness of sins. We affirm that, but that does not negate the fact that God wills to use ordained ministers to make a judgment in a particular circumstance to administer that forgiveness, exercising the very authority of Christ in the name of Christ, which suggests that the power is not coming from themselves. The power is from Jesus. Exactly. And there's a precedent for that too. I mean, we even see that in the Old Testament chapters like Leviticus chapter 5, 1 through 11, you know, God says, you know, confess your sins and I will forgive you through the priest, you know, so it's it's still God forgiving it, but through the ministers he uses and it's still being used that way in the New Testament. Yeah. And what's important about the Old Testament passages, Brian, and it's a little bit of, if there's a nuance here that we need to make in our conversations is that what we see in those Old Testament passages like Leviticus is the idea that God wills to associate reconciliation of his people with himself with his ordained ministers, as opposed to apart from his ordained ministers. And it's that principle that we're able to carry over here to John 20, 23, and see that at least it's consistent with God's dealings of humanity with humanity, that God would will to associate ordained ministers with the administration of the forgiveness of sins. But the difference is that in the New Testament, the apostles are to make that judgment, whether to forgive or not to forgive, to actually, and, and in making the judgment to forgive, the forgiveness of sins actually coming about through their decision, through their administration of the sacrament, as opposed to the Old Testament where they, the priests offered up sacrifices merely as a symbol of one's interior repentance and a sign, merely a sign, that God was reconciling them back to himself. So there's a similarity between the two of the association with ordained ministers and the reconciliation back to God in the Old Testament and ordained ministers reconciling people back to God in the New Testament, but there's also dissimilarity given the New Testament revelation that it is a sacrament as opposed to merely a sign of one's repentance. Exactly. Very well said. And um, we could go on and on about this wonderful topic. And um, so definitely, again, meeting the Protestant response. If you guys want to know more arguments for this particular response as well, it's in the book. Um, so I think we probably have time for one more. Um, okay. And there's many, 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 many more in the book. I mean, he has many chapters on Mary. He has many chapters on the sacrament, salvation. And uh, this is just a sampling to wet your whistle, people. And uh, so to get you excited about the arguments that are out there, you can have arguments, you can know your faith, and you can present it in a way that's logical and charitable. Um, so why don't we talk about and finish up with uh, James 2.24, you know, the classic okay. Protestant Catholic um, yeah. you know, jo jo jousting, so to speak, <laughs> you know, Catholic, yeah. so because they'll say, you know, faith alone, you know, it's by faith alone. And Catholics will say, no, it's not by faith alone. That's what James says. And the, they'll, of course, go to Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, and, you know, uh, Romans right. 3 and other passages. But um, Protestants attempt to give several responses to debunk or minimize uh, James 2.24, which says that we are saved by works, or I believe it says that we are justified by works and not by faith alone. And so right. what would one of these responses be? Um, and, you know, how could a Catholic you know, respond to that or, you know, what would they yeah. say in response to it? Yeah. So there's, 
there's really a one major common comeback that's given. R.C. Sproul articulates it well. He writes, our works justify our claim to faith in the eyes of human beholders. Such justification or vindication is not necessary for God. So the idea is, hey, listen, you Catholics, when you appeal to this passage, you're assuming that the justification that James is referring to is a justification in relation to God. But actually what he's referring to is a justification in relation to men. And the passage they often appeal to is James 2.18. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I by my works will show you my faith. So rather than it being a justification in relation to God, it's a justification or salvation or being justified as perceived by men. Like men are able to know that I am in a right relationship with God or I am saved. So that's the common comeback. So how do we respond? Well, first of all, Brian, this comeback fails to consider the salvific context of the passage. So for example, if you look at James 2.14, what does it profit, my brethren, if a man says he has faith but has not works? Can his faith save him? So the question becomes, what kind of salvation is James talking about? Is he talking about temporal salvation, which is the dominant sense of salvation throughout the Old Testament? Or is he talking about salvation in the sense of being saved by God in relation to God? Well, I argue the latter. The context uh, supports the latter interpretation that we're talking about the actual gift of salvation that God grants us. So notice what James says, for faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. He doesn't say faith is dead in the sight of men. He simply says, faith itself is dead. Now, if James meant that our works justify us merely in the sight of men, then our lack of works would have no negative effect on faith itself. It would, it would only have effect on faith as seen by men. But that's not what James says. James says faith itself is going to be dead if we do not have the works of charity that he articulates, clothing the naked uh, feeding the hungry, works of love. Also, there's three other times when the Greek word sozo is used in James' epistle. Each of those times, he uses it in reference to the salvation that God grants our souls. And that's in uh, James 1.21, 4.12, and 5.20. And then finally, check this out, Brian. The two acts, the two acts of charity that James lists as being necessary for faith to save us are of the same family of works that Jesus articulates that are necessary for us to inherit the kingdom of heaven prepared for us, according to Matthew chapter 25, verses 35 through 36. So the context of James 2.24 is a salvific context, and in particular, the salvation that God grants our souls. Now, perhaps even more convincing is that this interpretation, namely that the justification James is speaking of is in the sight of men, not in the sight of God, it doesn't jibe with the parallel that James draws between our justification by works and Abraham's faith in offering Isaac. 
because James clearly appeals to Abraham and his offering of Isaac and the justification that he had as a result of that obedient act in verses 21 through 23. He uses that as an example for our Christian justification by works and not by faith alone. The justification, the, the, the obedient action of Abraham in Genesis chapter 22, the justification that James sees Abraham as receiving as a result of that obedience is the same justification that Abraham receives by from God in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, when we're told Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. James even quotes that text in relation to Abraham offering up his son Isaac in sacrifice. So the justification that Abraham is said to have as a result of his obedient act of offering up his son Isaac is the justification that even our Protestant friends recognize to be justification in the sight of God in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. And James is saying it's that justification of Abraham that it parallels the Christian justification by works. And so the idea that the justification in the sight of man and not God does not jibe with Abraham's justification in the sight of God that James uses as an example for Christian justification by works. And then if you think about it, Brian, when Abraham offered up his son Isaac on Mount Moriah, there was no one there for his justification to be in the sight of. The justification was in the sight of God, not man. So to our justification that James talks about in James 2.24, justification by works, not by faith alone, is justification in the sight of God, not in the sight of man. And there are many more lines of argumentation in response to this combat that I point out in the book. Yeah, all great points. It reminds me of uh, Sunday's reading from this past uh, weekend. It says, by faith, Abraham obeyed God when he was called to go out to the place. He went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he dwelt in the land. Everything by faith and obedience are always brought together. Faith and obedience, even faith and disobedience, John contrasts as well. So when we're talking about true faith, it's always a an obedient faith that loves Christ and follows his commandments and does works of charity as well. Um, oh my gosh, I'm so passionate about about this. You're so passionate about this. I could go on all day, but unfortunately we have to end the show. It's a wonderful show. And I'm so thankful that you've come on uh, here today. Uh, can you tell people where they can find you, where they can find your books? And just so people know, I'm going to link it all down below as well. Yeah. Thanks, Brian. So they can get the book at shop.catholic.com. That's Catholic Answers online store. Of course, Amazon has it in other Catholic bookstores and they can follow my work at catholic.com. So all of the videos and the radio shows and the articles that I write are all found there. I also have my own website, carlobrusart.com, and that just serves as a one-stop shop for the stuff that I do here at Catholic Answers because we produce so much content in a day. Often what goes out in the morning will get lost in the feed by the end of the day. But catholic.com is where you, your viewers and listeners can uh, follow my work. And I loved your uh, passionate uh, on fire presentation. And uh, I don't know oh, if people you, are on the same page we are, but I just, this is why I love apologetics. It's just so 
it makes me on fire, it makes me passionate. I just want to sure. like know as much as humanly possible just because it makes sense. And when it makes sense, it's like a puzzle and all the pieces go in place. And when you see the whole picture, you're like, I get it. It makes sense. It's wonderful. Yeah. And that's what I want to challenge our listeners and uh, your listeners to do is to really study your faith, really know your faith, explore your faith, buy these books and learn them, underline them, circle them, really learn the arguments so that when you do uh, evangelize people, you don't have to get angry. You don't have to yell. You don't have to scream. Right. You don't have to condemn. You don't have to be sassy. You could just present arguments because you're not fearful of the, the attacks that are coming your way. Yeah. And I'm glad you brought that up, Brian, because I point this out in either the introduction or the conclusion of the book. And that that's one of the, the goods of the book. And one of the reasons why I wrote the book in order to articulate these Protestant combats in a way that can elicit from us as Catholics, a greater respect for our Protestant friends, right? So that we can love them in a charitable way in our conversations and have a charitable, fruitful dialogue with them. We can appreciate where they're coming from. Amen. So thank you for that. Thank you for your book and thank you for coming on our show today. And I want to right, thank Brian. everyone here for watching our podcast. Thank you for tuning in. Please check out our show description notes below. You can check out our books, his books, our PayPal, Patreon, social media. And uh, please keep praying for us because we're always praying for you. Thanks for tuning in and God bless you.